On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Vivian. And Vivian was in an abusive relationship with a power-hungry narcissist. It's a story of empathy, victim playing, stalking, and the calm before the storm. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, before we get to our episode with Vivian, I first want to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, a reminder, if you've not left stuff, yeah, if you have not left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, etc., etc., please leave us a five-star written review as it helps out the show a lot when it comes to rankings. Now, if you've not been to our Redone website recently, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com if you want to be a guest on our show at the top of the page. It says Guest Form. Click on that button. You fill out the guest form, and away we go in that process. But another way to be part of our show is to also go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. On the side of the page, there's a floating button that says send voicemail. That's for our letters to my narcissist compilation episode. If you want to read a letter to your narcissist, press that voicemail button, records up to five minutes. Yeah, I'm screwing up all the time here today. You press it twice. It records up to 10 minutes, three times, 15 minutes. If you don't want to read the letter yourself, you want me or my old pal, Melissa, to read the email for you or the letter for you. Send it to us at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and put in the subject line letters to my narcissist. Now, other things we have on our site at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we are offering high-conflict parenting courses at NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. Yes, we have now partnered with an online parenting company called Online Parenting, and the courses we are offering were created by Bill Eddy. And if you've listened to our episode last year with a divorce lawyer named Helen, you'll know that Bill Eddy is an expert in dealing with these individuals in court, and now he's helped create many parenting courses to help you through divorce and to help support your children too. These courses are the most widely recognized courses by family courts across the country. So if you want to support the show and are looking for guidance, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. And we also have another way to support the show, and that's by joining our Patreon. Yes, become a patron of our Patreon. What do we have on there? We have episodes that have never made it to air, follow-up episodes with former guests, and much more. But what is that much more, you ask? Well, let me tell you, that much more is we have virtual support groups now every Wednesday and Saturday. So if you want to join our little community on there, we all know each other pretty well. And it's a nice little family we have. A shout out to all of those people 
uh, a big shout out. We had a good time on Saturday, and now uh, you know Wednesday we are going to do our arts and crafts night, and we're going to do poetry. We're going to do uh, writing of all sorts. If you want to draw, you can draw. We're all going to get together. It's going to be a nice, relaxing time. And other things we have, you know, if, if you're on a Facebook support forum and you don't feel it's private enough, we have our own little support forum now uh, through our Patreon, which people are now using. And I want to thank all those people for joining in and sharing uh, their stories and their support. So thank you to everyone in our Patreon community. And you can find us there at patreon.com slash NarcissistApocalypse. And last thing, before we start the show, this is a really interesting episode of Vivian. It's kind of like uh, three parts in, in a way. We have the part of uh, the relationship story. We have the aftermath of the relationship, which is uh, has a lot to do with uh, court. There was stalking involved. There's harassment of all kinds. And, you know, even after her, her relationship was over, it got scarier after it was over. So... Uh, that was interesting. And then, you know, her final part where she was just kind of talking about uh, what she went through in the aftermath of everything. There's a lot. of She's very quotable. So big thanks to Vivian for, for being on the show. Um, you know, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Everyone, here is my episode with Vivian. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Vivian. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. I talked your ear off for a while. We chit-chatted about <laughs> a lot of stuff, and now we're here. So I'm just going to get out of my way and your way. Vivian, thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here. The floor is now yours. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, I guess if we're going to start with my life before this nightmare kind of began, um, a little bit about me. I'm an only child. Um, my mom has some codependent tendencies. Uh, my father has some pretty strong narcissistic tendencies. I don't know if I would say he's definitely a narcissist, but I would say that he has louder narcissistic traits for sure. Um, there was very strong messaging throughout my childhood that I was not to express any like negative emotions. That was not okay. Um, my father had some health problems throughout my life. Um, he was sick for, for many years, starting when I was a teenager. Um, my mom was always very concerned that any negative emotion in the house uh, would cause undue stress to my dad uh, and worsen his health conditions. Um, my dad, very resilient, um, persevered through all of his ailments, thankfully. Uh, he's still around. Um, however, he also conveyed very strong messages um, about me not being allowed to be in a bad mood. That was very, very clear when I was growing up. Um, life revolved around my dad um, due to my mom's sort of codependency and his kind of wanting to be the center in that way. Uh, my mom and I catered to his thoughts, even when he wasn't expressing them. Um, but whatever my mom's version of the thoughts she anticipated on his behalf, um, we catered to his feelings. Um, she always was worried about explosiveness, but I never saw that when I was growing up. Maybe he expressed it to her, but not to me. But during times of conflict between them, there were lots of eggshells, lots of silence. There was definitely like silent treatments that then silence 
for a long time made me feel really uncomfortable. Um, I was what you would describe as like a good kid, um, definitely an overachiever, rule follower, truth seeker. Um, and I was expected at a young age to handle conflict between other people in like a nuanced way, like dancing around other people's emotions, um, anything to keep mine in check and to value others' emotions, needs, thoughts more than my own. So keeping everybody happy was definitely like the expectation. There was strong messaging around that. That was probably what led me um, to my passion for psychology at a young age. Um, I always wanted to be a therapist, which is um, currently my profession. Um, I always wanted to give others a voice and sort of the permission to feel and sit in their feelings because I never really had that. Um, and I'm just like a good at being a repository for other people's feelings. I hold them relatively well. Um, I was married really young. Uh, this is not about my, my husband is not my narc. Um, I got married at age 24, had three children. Marriage was good for like the first decade. Um, I chose him who's now my ex-husband and again, not my narc, um, because I look, I saw the marriage between my parents, um, and my mom who was always very anxious and my dad who like wasn't, <laughs> I wanted to be the one who had more control in the relationship. So I very consciously chose my ex-husband. He was kind. He was warm. Um, we drifted apart. Uh, we had a very peaceful marriage. Um, but for many reasons, he, had, he kind of suffered from depression. He didn't want to seek out help. I wanted to be more sort of alive in my life. Um, I wanted my spirit to be able to come out a little bit. Um, he's a very passive person. He, just struggles, he struggles with some decision-making, um, which became important later on for why I chose my NARC. Um, you know, eventually I took charge of most of the decisions, um, in the relationship with my children. Uh, we ultimately kind of became roommates. We weren't intimate for the last several years of marriage. Um, and so at that point in time, I was looking for what my definition of masculinity was. So in my mind, it was very much like my dad, strong decision-making protection, um, and so at that point, at the end of my marriage, that's what I was really looking for. So then one night in the fall, this was years ago, back before COVID, when you can actually like sit at bars um, and go out with some freedom and without masks, uh, I went out to dinner with my friend, um, and then we went for a drink after. And then my soon-to-be narc approached my friend and I at the bar. Uh, I was sort of tending to a conversation with a very drunk guy next to me who kind of wouldn't leave us alone. Um, and my friend later told me that the narc initially approached her and asked which one of us was single. I don't know if he like didn't carry their way. Um, she's happily married. So she replied that I was single, which wasn't technically true at the time, but I guess true enough at the time for him. Uh, the very intoxicated patron next to me got the hint. Finally, he stumbles out and my narc ended up sliding in and began talking to me. My first impression was that he was like really grandiose, really arrogant, not my type. I uh, wasn't really interested. Um, physically, he's very tall. He's sort of massive. He's built intimidating looking. Um, <laughs> I later realized he was very intimidating, used his size that way as well. Um, he was super like starry eyed, gregarious, outgoing, really confident that that was kind of how he came across. Um, at the time he said he was coming from a friend's birthday party and 
just even that initial conversation, I almost felt forced to have it just by his mere presence. Um, it's, that's just the presence that he had. And his friends came and he had a female friend approach us at the bar and sang his praises to me. He was such a wonderful, generous person. Oh my God. I mean, she was a little wasted, but like still. Um, and then a few others of his friends came up throughout the night saying the same thing. So I almost felt like people vouched for him. Like he had some credibility in that moment. Um, so I was not as on guard throughout the night. When he told me his name, it was sort of an unusual name. Um, he said that it was a nickname given to him as a teenager. Uh, he told me that night he was adopted, but left his home at age 16 because his adoptive parents were very abusive towards him. And then in that moment, I remember feeling like a strong sense of empathy towards him already. And this sort of began the pattern of my like understanding his unhealthy behaviors and like where they come from and where they stem from. Part of that is because of what I do for a living. So I think it's kind of ingrained, but the other part of that being just throughout my life, like I was trained to like explain away other people's bad behaviors because my reactions to it didn't really matter. And, and this being um, your first meeting, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a, a woman being there to say all these nice things about him, reinforcing that he's a good guy, probably carries a lot more weight than a man doing it. And for sure, you know, your first time meeting, and you know, usually first time meeting, you're joking around. You're, you know, mm-hmm. it's very loosey goosey. This is heavy stuff you're being uh, given on this first meeting right here. This isn't like a usual first meeting, I'm at a bar kind of talk, but you got right here into, uh, you know, his childhood, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. bad things that happened to him. And right away, your empathy and, you know, as far, his victim playing is on uh, display in, you know, the first 30 minutes to an hour, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and doing what I do, sometimes um, it, people come up to us and say stuff like that. It's hard to explain. I don't know if I give off some sort of therapy vibe. <laughs> so, yeah, it was red flaggy, I guess, at the time. But it wasn't uh, so unusual. Um, but, yes, it was. he was definitely playing it up. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. So I cut you off there. Yeah. I apologize. Continue. No, that's okay. Please cut me off whenever you want. Um, so he, uh, so I remember him bragging. He was very, definitely bragged all the time. Very bragging about the company that he owned, and the company he owned had some famous and high-powered clientele. Um, I definitely remember not being impressed by this, but I would imagine that works really well on a lot of people. Um, at the time, um, his most high-profile client was Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> That should have said a lot right there. Um, and this happens to be at the time when the Me Too movement had just begun. Um, well, begun being talked about, obviously. It's always a thing. Um, and we debated sort of the goings-on around that issue for, like, a while that night. So, again, that was kind of heavy, too. Um, and, of course, he's sort of not being on my side of that issue already. Um, he showed me, like, his company crest. He had a ring to match. Uh, again, I don't, I like wasn't impressed by this, but I probably pretended to be, uh, cause that was 
certainly at the time, more of my people-pleasing ways um, and just to be polite. Uh, he had some tattoos. We discussed that as well because I have some. But the important thing about this was one of them was a Bible verse, but it was notated only by the chapter and line. It didn't have words on it. So we're talking. He asked for my number several times, and I was reluctant, and I kept saying no. Um, I just wasn't into giving guys out my phone number. Uh, we would get back into conversation, and then he would ask again. So already he's starting with, like, what would turn into kind of incessant boundary violations. But I would give in to them because I felt uncomfortable saying no, just to people in general. Um, at the end of the night, when my friend and I were leaving, he asked again. I finally gave in. I handed him my number, um, really in order to feel like we could just leave, uh, because he kind of kept it up. So he texted me immediately with instructions that I should look up the Bible verse that matched his tattoo and report back the following day. And of course, like people are going to hear this and be like, what? That's ridiculous. <laughs> but I remember at the time I was like intrigued by that. And I was like, wow, this is the guy who's like decisive. He takes charge. Um, and for whatever reason, I didn't see it as controlling. I didn't see it as a red flag. But he had so many looking back. Um, but that's the thing, right? It's like if people adhered to them, we wouldn't be having this podcast, I guess. Um, I saw it as his taking initiative, like being creative and fun. Um, but that kind of began the roller coaster that was my life and then the addiction to the trauma bond that would basically kind of like engulf me. Um, and I complied with the assignment of responding with the Bible verse tattoo. I looked it up. Um, probably the first time I opened the Bible since <laughs> I was like a junior in high school. Um, I can't even remember what the tattoo was now. I'm probably blocking it out. Um, but from that moment forward, he inundated me with text messages, calls. He occupied my time morning until night. Total love bombing. He knew nothing of me. He knew nothing about me. Um, but he would say things like, oh, I can tell already like how strong and independent you are. And um, basically, all, weirdly, all kind of the expectations that were placed on me when I was growing up, he was instinctively like praising me for. Um, and so everything moved really quickly from there. Um, our first date was a few days after we met. It was at a high-end restaurant. He's flashing money everywhere. It was clearly like his version of tears, except super upscale. Everybody knew him when we walked in. Everybody sang his praises. Again, like the staff, and they were so happy to see him. Um, all part of his facade, because as it turns out, um, I found out he gave everyone on the staff $100 for Christmas bonuses every year. Um, but when I walked into the restaurant, he was sitting at the bar waiting, and I asked, I approached him, and I asked, is this seat for me? Like, I'm being a little flirty. And I remember him looking at me with this, like, loving gaze. And at the time, I thought it was charming and sweet. But then he later told me this was the moment he fell in love with me. He knew, he knew nothing about me. It wasn't me. It wasn't about me. I didn't know that then. And I wanted it to be about me. Um, pretty early on, we exchanged the I love yous, started and prompted by him. But I definitely was doing it, too. Uh, he would constantly tell me how much he loved me in person, in phone, in text, all day, all night. And on our first date, he got a call at the table from Harvey Weinstein's daughter, actually. And then he, you know, regaled me with tales of his celebrity clients in this, like, hugely grandiose way. And everybody needed to know how important he was. Uh, he was super charismatic. I mean, really personable, warm 
funny, super smart. Um, and from that dinner forward, we were basically inseparable. He occupied all of my free time. So um, I, just for one second, I'm going to interrupt you. I apologize for interrupting, but no, I, I, no had to, I had to just kind of discuss it. You know, I'm a big movie person. In in a weird way, mm. your beginning there, uh, like with the restaurant and all that, it reminds me of Goodfellas. And Oh, that's so funny that you say that. Because, you know, when it was um, Ray Liotta and Lorraine Bracco and they do go underground and he's giving tips to everyone, he gets the best mm-hmm. seat in the house. You know, you have mm-hmm. you have famous musician there. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone's going. And she turns yep. to him and goes, you know, uh, what kind of business are you in? And he goes, I'm in construction. And she looks at his hands and goes, these mm-hmm. hands don't look like they're in construction. He goes, I'm in the union. You always mm-hmm. had an answer kind of for everything and mm. you know she was taken aback it was like it was, you know this whole it wasn't just him it was the whole scene and yeah it was totally. hard not to like be in a little whirlwind of like, your head turning around like what's going on here and you know to me it's what, also super seductive yeah and you know, yeah sorry the uh for you know you um, like, as soon as you were talking about that, all I could think about was, was Goodfellas and that was you, you were Lorraine Bracco. Yeah, totally. And you know, whatever answer didn't matter. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And you know, like to a degree power, cause that's really, it's all power, right? Like it, it is seductive. It, it can be intoxicating. And I definitely fell into that. I wasn't hugely impressed with like the name dropping that he did with the celebrities. Um, but that whole scene, exactly like you're talking about, that to me, I was like, wow. And how lucky am I? How lucky am I to be in this situation right now? And that's sort of where my head was at. So, yeah. again, I, I cut you off with my movie stuff. Um, where, <laughs> I love where, the movie stuff. Keep it up. <laughs> where, where were we? That's okay. It slowly turns into sleeping with the enemy. Not to be a spoiler <laughs> alert. But that's where we're going with those. <laughs> you know, like the organization in the cabinet is also kind of a thing, but you know, I don't, I don't want to give too much away. Um, so he has an adult son. Okay. And he, he's a little older than me, um, but he had started early. So uh, he had an adult son and a four-year-old grandson. Um, he'd never been married to the son's mother, but he always described them having a very friendly relationship. Um, and he said he was friends with some of his ex-girlfriends and, you know, he just never found the one is all. Um, of course, I wanted to be the one. <laughs> he then spoke really, though, unkindly about the exes that he wasn't friends with. And, you know, I'm sure everybody knows the deal. He claimed those relationships were, you know, ending due to the ex being unfaithful, super crazy. They were psycho. They cheated on him left and right. And then he ended up spending a lot of time talking about the exes. Like there was crazy like triangulation in that way. Of course I didn't see it that way at the time. And I think he was trying to like elicit a reaction from me. Um, But the only one he got is that I felt bad for him. You know, he was really playing up that victim. And I really attached to that in like an empathic way. Plus I'm not really a jealous person. So if that was his attempt at that kind of triangulation, I really didn't bite on that. Um, I just, that that's not my trigger per se. I have so many others, but that's just not one of them. Um, so very soon, you know, funny you say about 
you know, your movie reference, but very soon thereafter, he introduced me to all of his friends. I mean, like really early on and most of whom were lifelong and they definitely resembled the cast of the Sopranos. Like if you're looking at them sitting around that table, that was my life. Those were his friends. That's how they spoke. It was very, very much like that. Um, which is pretty fitting since later I discovered he was laundering money, you know, always on the up and up. Uh, it definitely seemed like he liked showing me off almost as if, you know, he looked better having me on his arm. Um, he loved telling everybody what I did for a living. Like, okay. Um, and I thought he was like proud of me <laughs> for my endeavors. Uh, he was always bragging about where I went to school cause I went to, um, a, a good school. And he would basically like recite my resume to everybody. Um, you know, later, of course, I realized he's attaching himself to my positive attributes. I took his bragging as a compliment because that's where my head was at at the time. Um, he just had this really entitled attitude, the sense of importance. He really thought he was so attractive, that he was so intelligent, very self-aggrandized. Um, and what was interesting was that night when I met the cast of The Sopranos, um, one of them was talking to me for a little, and then he leaned over and said to my narc, oh, she's way too smart for you. And I think later on that night, we got into an argument. <laughs> but that kind of always was that pattern. Um, starting early on in the relationship, he would give me money every month, almost like an allowance, um, to help me pay for, like, incidentals. Uh, and personal things like haircuts, things like that. At the time I was separated from my now ex-husband, things were really tense at home, um, and I didn't have access to our marital funds at the time. Um, so that was another way he almost tried immediately to have me attached to him. I initially said no, I didn't want his money, um, but he insisted. Um, and at times he would even like slip money into my jacket pocket or my purse when I wasn't paying attention. Like he really wanted me to have his money. Um, and like I said, like even the first night, but consistently throughout our relationship, he described a very difficult childhood, emotional, physical abuse, um, ultimately then ending in his escape. Um, so he left his house at 16, uh, and he would wander from one friend's house to another, staying like a few days here and there on their couches until he was 18. This is according to him, of course, whatever that's worth. Um, and he was working in order to get his first apartment. When I met him, he had his own home. He opened that, you know, he started that company um, that became very big, according to his fancy clientele. He ran it from the home office. He had all this free time. You know, he had his shit together. That's how it seemed. Um, his ability to take charge, make decisions. And, like, his perseverance and resilience, it was really appealing to me at the time. It was really attractive. Um, you know, I ran my whole household, my career, child, like, I had the three kids that I was raising. And I was looking for the relief of somebody else, like, deciding on something for a change. That's what I was looking for. And he really honed in on that. Um, and I thought he would do this with my best interest in mind, not the opposite. But that is what it is. Um, I met a couple of his past girlfriends because he had like this huge social network and they kind of fluttered in and out of that network as well. Um, one of them seemed like really emotionally dependent on him. And she was like, I looked at her as really meek. 
Um, and I remember feeling sorry for her, but it, it wasn't until much later that I realized why, um, who he is and he really kept people trapped. Yeah. Uh, he always talked about his, he had a female best friend that he always talked about. She was living on the opposite coast of where we live. Um, and he said they'd been friends for many years. They never dated, but when she was on our coast and visiting family, she would stay at his house. He had a closet in his house that was filled with all of her stuff, clothes, wardrobe. And that always made me feel uncomfortable. Um, and his friends, his ex-girlfriends at times would also kind of crash at his place whenever they needed to, you know, because he's super generous. Uh, he had this really large home. He lived alone. And, you know, he was gracious and, uh, enough to offer space to whoever needed it. Um, this really didn't make me jealous. It just made me feel strange. Um, I really wasn't worried about it at the time because he was really good at explaining everything away. Um, and, again, I almost felt lucky. Like, I was special, that out of everybody, he had all these people, and he chose me. Uh, and I know it sounds super sad, um, but that's how it was at the time. And looking back, I don't even recognize myself. Like, that wasn't who I was prior to him, and it's not who I am, thankfully, after him, even though it could have gone that way, I guess. So was there a moment for you uh, that kind of sealed the deal as far as I'm in hook, line, and sinker. This guy, you know, he, he did all of his love bombing and his trust building. And, and there's a, is there a specific event where you're like, you stamp of approval, this guy's the guy? Well, yeah. I mean, and I guess it's tied into the beginning of the devaluation. But, yeah, I mean, he would talk a lot about taking care of me and my kids. That was very important to me. I was very scared leaving my marriage that, like, I have these young kids and, like, what are, not what are we going to do necessarily for money per se because I have a job, thankfully, and a brain, but also, like, like, just that family life of somebody who's, like, interested and interesting and invested and... Uh, this, these are all the great things we're going to do, and this is what our life is going to be, and, you know, it's just going to be this passionate, and I don't even mean, like, in a sexual way, but just, like, this passionate kind of alive in your life, uh, and we're just going to have this great life together. And he would say that all the time, and I think that's what really hooked it. And when he started talking about my kids, he never met my kids, thank God. Thank God. One, one thing I kind of did right along the way. It was just all of my free time. Like, just all of it. I love you. I love, I mean, I, I can't even tell you how many times a day he would, he would say it and um, how amazing I am and, you know, how he would, you know, just appreciates me so much. And, like, um, I've never had somebody I felt this way about, and you're the one. That's all. I've just been waiting for my soulmate is all. And thank God you walked into that bar that night. Thank God you said, is this seat for me? And it was just a lot of that. So I was like, wow. I found this guy, like this big dude, he's going to protect me. Not that I ever even needed protection. I don't even know necessarily where that came from. I think it's because, I mean, I shouldn't say I don't know. I've, I have looked into it, and I, my dad is not like an affectionate person, um, and he could be sort of cold. I always knew he loved me, um, but 
he didn't like outwardly express it. And he feels like really uncomfortable just like with emotion in general. And, but there were always these times, like if I had my high school boyfriend, he'd be like, oh, you know, if you come by, like I know where you live. And he would like say stuff like that. And in those moments, I felt that was like him saying, I love you to me. So with my narc, well, my ex-husband was not like that. He was very warm and affectionate and outgoing and saying it, but he wasn't a protective physically. He didn't have that presence about him. And then the narc came along and he really had that in speed. And I think I really connected to that piece. Well, and I think too, I probably inadvertently through conversation that we had gave him hints about all this stuff, right? And, and they're really good at attaching to that. Whereas other people wouldn't, like if you and I were having that conversation, it's not like down the line, you know, you would say to me, okay, well now I'm going to protect you because, you know, because <laughs> we're just making conversation, but they're so skilled at just really finding your soft spot and really just kind of trying to heal them at first so that they can rip them apart later. Um, and just like you said, the trauma bonds is just like ridiculous. Um, you know, and we weren't even together that long and, and certainly not as long as some of your, your previous, um, previous people who have you know, recorded the, con- the podcast, but um, I still stayed in way past the expiration date, way, way past, and we weren't even together that long, thankfully. Um, so the devaluation, uh, it was very kind of systematic and it started early on, I would say like a month in. Um, and like we talked about, that golden period was amazing. Shows, concerts, restaurants. We were building a life. We went on errands together. Lots of them were going to the bank every day. Again, with his Sopranos cast. Um, you know, I told you he was talking about a future. You know, he was going to take care of us. And I was sucked in. Um, so one night we were in bed and he began asking me questions about, like really personal questions about previous sexual partners. Um, he'd always been really open about his previous relationships or all his past partners or so he said his activities. Um, he kind of led almost like a riskier, uh, lifestyle around certain things. Um, and I remember feeling super uncomfortable with the question and I tried to dance around it. Um, I feel like most people would try to dance around that. Well, probably most people would just say, get out of here. There's no way I'm answering that. Uh, he was really direct and he explained that like, he didn't care about my previous partners or relationships, but he wanted to know. So he would have, you know, we'd have the complete transparency in our relationship. (laughs) It's hard for me to even say that without laughing. Um, I, you know, I revealed a couple of things, but I kept it really vague. Um, but he wasn't satisfied with that answer. Uh, and I could tell. Uh, just by his, like, body language and things he was saying. And I remember feeling, like, really uncomfortable around the fact that I wasn't able to, like, make him feel better with the information in the moment. Um, there was always something in my gut that didn't want to give that information, and I wanted to keep it private. You know, looking back, of course, I see that question and or the information that it wasn't answered completely. And the timing of when it was brought up because he would always do this right before we were going to sleep um it was just a complete boundary violation just like such manipulation and unfortunately this kind of became the theme of most of our nightly conversations and he started asking just like every other day and then it was just like definitely daily and then the more he asked the more exhausted I became like as a result, just the conversation, like the conversation itself was exhausting. It 
increased anxiety, I think, because I had some shame around it, if we're being honest. And the more information I would give in hopes that it would end the line of questioning. Like, I just wanted to stop talking about it. So then I would kind of give more and more and more, hoping it would stop the conversation, but it never did. So what he would do is say every day that he wasn't able to sleep the night before and that he was kept up most of the night because he had a gut feeling that I wasn't telling him everything and that I was keeping things from him, meaning like who my previous partners were, details about it, just like really private personal things that I think most people don't talk about with anybody. Um, And he would say things like, this is torturing me. Like, just tell me the truth. I can deal with anything if you're just honest. I can tell that you're holding things back. You're not including the details. And he would always tell me, like, the timeline you're giving me doesn't make sense. I know there's more. I know there's more. And this was just like the mantra every single day. Um, And then he would go on my social media and he would go back like years and years in my profiles, in my friends' profiles, he questioned me about pictures that had been taken years before I met him. Um, and he would say things to me like that he was taking on so much by dating me, that here he is, this single guy, he doesn't have to do this. I was on my way to get divorced, but I hadn't been divorced yet. I had these three kids that were, he implied they were baggage and that other men would never want that. Uh, And he would kind of just like say that all the time to the point where I started to believe it. Uh, And he would say things like, you kind of threatened me. Like, oh, if you ever cheated on me, I would do this to you. I would do that to you. And he kind of said that to me all the time. I had no desire to cheat on him. Um, I gave him no reason to think I would cheat on him. Um, But he was very, he was jealous in that way. Um, And I'm really into music. So part of his evaluation, what he would like, sporadically send me these like YouTube videos of certain songs, right? For instance, he sent me a text with the video, uh, like the YouTube video of Honesty by Billy Joel. Like I love Billy Joel. Um, And in the text, he wrote like, all I want from you is honesty, but I'm afraid you can't give it to me. And he would send like, (laughs) this is the psycho, but he would send like the videos of the song within, within the lyrics. So he like really thought this out. Um, and of course I'm reassuring him, like, what are you, you, of course I would always be honest with you and I'm begging and kind of this, what I'm sure people would see as a pathetic display and he could just be subtle, but he was really calculating. And now I can't even listen to that song. Like there are a a few, I'm working my way back, uh, but not yet. So interspersed were like what I thought were wonderful and fun times, right? We're doing the dinners out, we're doing the drinks, we're meeting his friends. And we actually took a trip to meet his biological mother. He had met her um, a few times and he took me to meet her. Uh, He had tracked her down years prior via like a private detective. Um, And then right around this time, he wanted to introduce something new into our sex life. Um, I, declined at first. It wasn't something I was interested in. And at first he said he respected my decision. Okay. Which we know is not going to be how that goes. Um, but he persisted and he always did. And he kept requesting and eventually I just acquiesced. Um, and even when he wanted to incorporate it, which wasn't all the time, it felt like a 
it was about power. It was about control. It wasn't about even his enjoyment, and it certainly wasn't about mine. Um, and I didn't like it, and I expressed resistance. Um, but, again, I felt like I should put my own needs aside and my wants aside and just to make him happy. He had explained that he had a much more adventurous sexual lifestyle in the past, um, although he really didn't want to have sex all the time, but whatever. I later realized that, of course, you know, this was an effort to control me and to push me to do something I hadn't before and that I didn't want to in order to make him feel more powerful. Um, and he definitely liked to do that during vacations and special events. So I'm sure that was, so that could be a little ruined for me. Um, but one of the worst nights of the devaluation, um, and this is like sort of my first attempt to get out, um, occurred a couple, two or three months in, we had gone out to dinner. We were sitting at a bar. <laughs> this seems to be like what we do a lot. Um, it was crowded and we were talking, having a drink. And there was like a young couple standing next to us because it was, it was just jam packed. And the man kept like bumping into my chair just by virtue of, there were so many people. It really wasn't that irritating. Um, and I was unbothered by it, but he, my narc was very bothered by it. He, and he stood up really suddenly and he yelled um, for the man to stop bumping into my chair, but he was doing it in like a really threatening, it, it was just really, um, it just didn't fit. It, it was, it was too harsh. Um, and I was just like immediately alarmed by this because this posture was just super aggressive. Um, and the man apologized immediately because he wasn't doing anything on purpose to bother us. Um, but my narc again was just like super aggressive. And so I, stood myself in between the guy and my narc and I was pleading for him to sit down and cause that stuff gets me nervous. Um, like, okay, I want to know he can protect me, but like, I don't want to actually be involved in that situation at all. Uh, and I, I said to him, if he were to start a fight, I was just going to like run out of the place. I, I wanted no part of it. So he, he sat down and calmed down really quickly, which was actually sort of equally alarming at the time. Um, so we kept talking, but within a couple of minutes, he started randomly questioning me about this like, casual relationship I had had years prior to even meeting him. But he was asking very specific questions, where we ate, what we did, and I was caught off guard because it was just bizarre, um, but I answered him, and he became very stern, but he kept his voice low. And he was just saying that, I guess, what I had told him had conflicted with whatever previous details I gave him when he asked the last time, which was probably the day before. Um, it wasn't the case. I gave him all the same information, but his ability to gaslight was just monumentally incredible. That's like the only way I can say it. Um, so, so he's his, and, his biggest thing here, uh, especially at the beginning of the devaluation process and most likely through the whole entire process, his biggest devaluation is to go through your sexual history, find inconsistencies in your stories yes. uh, or, yes. or, or like uh, make up inconsistencies make up. in your stories, uh, use that against you and oh, gaslight yeah. you and just kind of have you in this little bit of a... Uh, crazy making kind of like what is what is going on here and also at the same time he's uh, devaluing you in the sense of uh, you being good enough as far as you know you come with three kids you have baggage all Mm -hmm. these other things about yourself 
and you know you are a therapist so are you at this point you know because a lot of people who are dealing with this don't come from that background at all and they think mm-hmm. like someone who is a therapist would be able to kind of see through these things mm-hmm. but, but we've had many therapists mm-hmm. come through the, the show um so mm-hmm. for, for you are you thinking about these things like uh how, why am i putting up with this like this is my profession or anything like that or is that not even in your mind that's not even in my mind. I wish I could say, I, uh, you know, but in, at the time, his ability to really be so insidious with that manipulation, it was so much more like, well, there must be something wrong with me. It, like, I'm a therapist. It's more like this. I'm a therapist. I should be able to de-escalate the situation. I should be able to keep him calm. It was much more of that and much less, I need to get out of this situation because I know better because I'm a therapist. It was more like I almost felt incompetent as a therapist that I couldn't maintain his mood stability. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was really a lot more of that. Um, yeah. And my gut a few times, like, and especially that night, I was like, oh, get the hell out of this. I, it, it was, but it wasn't from a therapeutic standpoint. It was more just like probably what anybody would feel. Um, and, you know, I ignored it. And plus, like, when we're going to school to be therapists, right, like, in our curriculum does not really involve this, right? Like you take an abnormal psych class undergrad and even in graduate school, maybe you do it for a semester. Um, And, you know, you go through narcissism like in a, you know, 15 minutes of your class period. So until you've really been in it, 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 you know, it's, it's unfortunate because unless you're trained in it, unless you study it or unless you've been in it, you can actually do a lot of damage to people you know, trying to convince them to stay and work out a situation that could potentially really reactivate them over and over again. Um, but I wasn't seeing anybody who was, I had a different demographic of client at the time. Um, so I don't think I messed too many people up. So <laughs> I guess that's good. Um, but, uh, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, I, I know so much more now. Um, you know, unfortunately, having been through it, but very fortunate in that I feel like there's a lot of potential to help other people. Um, So that maybe even if they do have to go through something I went through, at least they can get out, you know, uh, before really bad things happen. Because in in, in my notes that I, uh, maybe from like 15 minutes or 16 minutes ago in the conversation, I'm being really specific there. I wrote down reverse (laughs) psychology and I was like, why did I write reverse psychology down? And, you know, because a lot of the times in in the situations where someone might be like, "This is not good for me. I'm going to break up with this person." You know, that's your mentality. But when the other person, before that even comes to play, pulls a card where it's like, in a way, they play the victim and they play into that other person's psychology and your psychology being a, of a fixer of a sort, oh, yeah. I, you know, I'm broken or whatever, all of a sudden that thing that might yeah. tell you whatever, all of a sudden that little reverse psychology move has you going, I don't want to break up. We can fix this. It's a, it's a really yeah. small little thing. And in your case, I think that's kind of what has happened here in a, in a lot of it. For sure. For sure. And also it's almost like hits your ego, like, especially in my profession, right? It's kind of like, oh God, you're going to leave this. Like you couldn't fix that. Like, you must not be that good. And that's my own narcissistic brain, right? If we're really going to look at it. Uh, thankfully, my empathic ones are a lot louder, I think. 
Um, but sure, that hit my, yeah, it hit so many things. I, I, so many. You know, and, and so I'm sitting there in this restaurant. Now I'm scared to death because it's that getting really calm. That's always the calm before the storm always with him and so as soon as he got really calm and very suddenly and sort of his voice went lower um that just wasn't a good sign so he starts this questioning um he's starting to gaslight me and then he wants to leave we weren't even done and then i knew it was really going to get ugly um and so he didn't speak to me the whole car ride home um the silent treatments never lasted long but long enough until like you're scared so they didn't go days. Like, it wasn't like that. It, it would be like the car ride. Um, so we made a stop. Like, he wanted to get lottery tickets. So we made a, we stopped at the store, and I wanted to stay in the car because I was kind of in this weird frozen state. And before he got out of the car, he sort of yelled at me, and he said, by the time I get back in this car, you had better get your story straight. And it was like with that disciplinary tone to it um, and like a threatening, veiled threat but not really all that bailed. Um, and he would always say to me that if I lied, he would eventually always find out. And he would always kind of triangulate my friends into it. So he would say, hey, listen, we do things with your friends all the time. And one day, one of them is going to slip about something you said. And it doesn't matter when it is. It could be a month. It could be a year. And no matter when I find out, and I'll always find out, I'm going to leave you, and I don't care where we are in the relationship. I don't care if we're married. I don't care if I've known your kids for 20 years. It doesn't matter. I'll leave, and I won't care. And so I was always terrified, like not only about the kind of leaving the relationship part, but I, I was just always terrified about what he would do if he interpreted something as being different from how he remembered what I told him. That whole gaslight thing was just insane. Um. And so then it got to the point where I was constantly, like, checking my recollection of my own life against what I told my friends along the way. So this is when I'm calling my friends, and I'm like, okay, remember when we went out to dinner, like, four years ago? Like, was I wearing a black top? Because there was a picture, like, that kind of ridiculousness. And my friends were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't even remember what I had for breakfast. Why are you asking me these questions? But I was terrified that like, I, like, accidentally lied to him and he would leave me or if I would remember something incorrectly. Um, so then I'm, like, an anxious mess. Um, it just, like, increased my anxiety tremendously when I was around him. And it led to me feeling, like, really insecure all the time. And, again, not an insecure person. Um, so, anyway, he gets back into the car. I don't remember exactly what I said. I was always in this, like, we talked about it earlier, this kind of perpetual fog. Um, I probably just admitted to whatever lie he said I told because I always fell on the sword. Um, because my whole life, like, my parents were always, well, my mom in particular would always say, like, you don't need to be right, you need to be happy. And I, like, kind of took that mantra on my own. And, like, all right, yeah, sure, I lied, okay, whatever. I just wanted to be happy with him. I wanted the conversation to end. And... I didn't care to defend myself. I didn't need to be right. I knew inside my head what was the fact. And if he wanted to believe something else, that's fine as long as we didn't fight about it. And so once I kind of, whatever, succumbed to whatever lie he said I told, um, at that point, I thought everything was kind of okay. Um, and then we got home to his house. Uh, I was in the bathroom. I was like washing my face. He comes into the room and he just erupted 
screaming, like constant eggshells, right? But now, now he's screaming, and he had never done that before. What a liar I am. All kinds of, like, expletives and names that he called me, um, that he can never believe anything I say. Um, just this horrific display. And I never had anybody talk to me like that, especially not a man. Like, I had never had anybody treat me this way. But at this point, the trauma bond is, like, so strong. And I remember just hysterically crying. I'm also not a hugely emotional person, but you would never know that based on <laughs> the description of the story. But I was crying. I was curled up into the ball, a ball on the floor in the bathroom. He was screaming then at me for crying. So he's standing over me. He's got, like, drool dripping from his mouth. His face is red. It's filled with rage. And I felt like it went on forever. Although, you know, looking back, I'm sure it was just like a couple of minutes. Um, and then suddenly, because he did things like he could go either way very suddenly, he just pronounced that he was done wasting time on my fake tears. That's what he said. And he left the room. It was like a master bathroom. So the bedroom was right outside. So he just laid down calmly on the bed. Uh, I remember it was the hun- he turned on the honeymooners. And he's laughing laughing at Ralph Cramden's antics, you know, and there I am laying a shell of my previous self on the bathroom floor. Um, I eventually got back up. I kind of composed myself. I came out of the bathroom and I was looking to like get my stuff and leave. He suddenly, again, sprung up from the bed, like in this kind of like one swift motion. And then he transformed back into the monster from the bathroom. He never actually tried to hurt me physically, but deep down I knew like, that was definitely going to be a possibility. Um, And again, I've never been in a situation that wouldn't have reminded me of a situation where I got hit by somebody. I never had that. It was just like an instinct in me. I was like, this is not good. I'm going to get hit. Um, And so just kind of like from that instinct, I I kind of stayed several feet away from him. Uh, I moved my body diagonally, like across with every step he took, I kind of like counterbalanced it and moved a different way. And I definitely wouldn't turn my back. And then, of course, he used my fear to ridicule me in the moment and how ridiculous it was that I would think he would ever lay a hand on a woman. Um, I, of course, you know, didn't think it was that ridiculous. So I end up leaving. And then a day later, he's apologizing. You know, I told him at the time, you know, speaking of movies, um, I told him that I felt like I was living in a Lifetime movie. That's exactly how it felt. And I've heard other people describe it that way, too. And I can definitely relate to that. He, you know, he's apologizing. He would never want me to feel that way. He loves me, all that stuff. That was not true. But that was really the first time I tried to unsuccessfully listen to my gut and my friends and my family and, and leave the relationship. But, you know, the Hoover, he came back begging for forgiveness, professing his love. He just wants to be there for me and the kids, again, having never met them. Um, and I always relented and made excuses. I justified the behavior, and that was the pattern. So then after that, it was shortly thereafter, he began calling me by my middle name when he was happy with me. And then he called me by my first name when he was unhappy with me. So this, of course, was like so interwoven in that whole devaluation. So when he was unhappy, you know, he's accusing me of lying or that I was holding the truth or I wasn't allowing him to sleep because he felt I wasn't telling him every intimate moment of my four decades on this planet. Uh, when he was threatening me to leave the relationship, all of those times he called me by my first name in a very like parental, um, just with that tone, 
Um, and this became another warning sign to me, right? When things were starting to get rocky, um, he would just start calling me by my first name. And it was just fucking weird. Like everything in our relationship was just weird. Um, and then it got to the point where I hated my name because there was always such toxicity that became associated with it. But like the insidiousness of it was if you think about it, everyone around you calls you by your name. So then when I heard other people call me my name, it like reactivated that feeling in me. Um, and then, you know, years later and looking back on it, I feel like he probably did that in like this weird projective way because he went by a nickname to escape his actual birth name, which was associated with his trauma in his background, the, the abuse that he experienced. And then the other thing is that he treated his dog horribly. And I've listened to other people on the podcast also say this about their narcs who had animals, that they would, you know, treat them pretty badly. And my narc, like, hit his, he had a large dog, and he hit him a lot, which, of course, made me feel very uncomfortable. And one time, we were laying on the couch, which is his favorite thing to do, and the dog was kind of annoying. So he kept, like, looking for attention, um, and so I asked the dog to go lay down. And then here comes my narc immediately sits up straight. Like that, again, that one swift, sudden movement. And then it kind of, we were laying side by side. So it kind of like made me move. Um, but he said absolutely nothing. The dog runs over to the other side of the room because I'm sure he was startled by like that sudden movement and that like palpable shift in the energy. So the narc just sits up. He stares at the dog straight in the eyes, just straight in the eyes. And it was that black color change in the eyes that, people speak to like in that psychopathic kind of way. Um, and he just stared at him for like a good 30 seconds in silence, his eyes just black and the dog turned around, walked away and just laid down silently. It was one of the scariest moments. I, I it sounds weird, but it was just this, one of the scariest moments I've ever seen. And every ounce of my being told me to run. And if I didn't know before, I knew for sure then. And, you know, uh, I guess I've learned the hard way that when you know, like you have to go, that's just it. And then there were other times I tried to leave the relationship. It, it didn't happen. We had a trip coming up. I felt guilty for not going on. It was already planned and paid for. We went, um, it was to another part of the country and I believe that he, um, drugged me because I don't remember most of it. Um, I don't have proof of it. Uh, but I, I do believe it happened. Um, I remember the hotel we stayed at and I remember one dinner, but I literally have no recollection of the rest of the trip. So I guess we get to the beginning of the end, right? Um, after we got back from the trip, he told me that that female best friend who lived across the country was returning and visiting and was going to be staying with him. Um, then, like, he didn't return a call or two from me, which was uncharacteristic. Another time he yelled at me, which unfortunately was not so uncharacteristic. Uh, more gaslighting. Then he told me things that really didn't about plans he had with her, some circular conversations, and then, like, he canceled plans with me. Um, and I felt at that point now he's distancing himself from the relationship. And really, at that point, his only appeal, for lack of a better word, aside from the rampant trauma bond that had developed, was the fact that he wanted to see me all the time, and he did see me all the time. So at that point, when he kind of withdrew that, um, for whatever reason, that was my moment. And I saw that as my opportunity to like finally be free. And I was just tired. I was tired of the eggshells, tired of feeling rejected, tired of always being wrong, 
tired of wondering if all the vulnerable information I gave them was going to be enough. I was tired of being scared, tired of warning my friends about what they should or shouldn't say around him, which I did a lot. Tired of wondering what was going on with his like bevy of beauties that surrounded him. Tired of explaining his bad behavior to my friends and family and just fucking tired of explaining his bad behavior away in general, I guess to myself. Um, so I decided one day to go to his house. I had stuff at his house, a lot of stuff um, that I wanted to retrieve. They were mine. Um, and I knew his schedule. He was really predictable about like where he would be when he was very rigid, fixed in his behaviors and I mean his personality in general. Um, I had complete access to the house. He kept it unlocked, but I had the key. I had all the codes to get into everything. Um, and I arrived right after the time he usually leaves to um, like go work out. And I'm, I got in there and moved as quickly as possible. Like I mapped out in my head exactly where I kept everything, everything. So like I left no trace of myself behind or that's what I wanted to do. I went through the whole house. I got my stuff. I cried while saying goodbye to his dog because he was annoying, but like I loved him. And then I hear the door chime go off. So my narc had come home while I was doing this. Oh, <laughs> very scary. Um, and so he was claiming that he forgot the lock to his gym locker, which was weird. So we get into this argument. He actually wasn't as horrific as he had been, as he had been in previous arguments. And <laughs> but I did what I discovered later is the worst thing you could do to a narcissist is tell him that he is one. Um, and I felt like I was finally fighting back, you know, like I was telling him exactly what I thought of him. Um, and he remained very calm again, we know not a good sign. Um, and he said that I was welcome to take my things, get out. And I did. And I was free or like, I thought I was free. Um, so that night, you know, it was a very stressful day. So that night I had made a, a plan to meet up with a friend of mine for drinks that happened to be at a bar close to his home. It just, we, we actually lived kind of close to each other at the time. So it was kind of equally distant. She had dinner plans somewhere else. So we were just meeting for a drink, but I got to the bar early. I sat alone in the corner. I had, I was like facing the window and I had a book with me. Um, I was hungry. So I ordered myself a bar pie and a glass of wine while I waited. Not atypical for me to go places by myself. I'm an only child. So I go to places by myself all the time. So all of a sudden, I hear a large crunch over my right shoulder. I turned around, and there he stood, like exactly as he was, like in standing over me, like in the bathroom that night. He had actually taken a, a slice of my pizza from over my shoulder and took a bite of it. And when I had turned, he then threw it down on the bar. And the only thing he said to me was, I didn't know you would be here. And then he turned around and walked away. And of course, like my stomach's in my throat, right? I froze. I said nothing. Um, I was shaking, obviously. Um, he, he had left. I called my friend. Um, I knew in that moment I had like two choices, right? It's like a choose your own adventure book, like my entire life. Um, so like I could stay and kind of reclaim my right to be anywhere I wanted unafraid, or I could take the, the other choice, which would be to leave, just meet her somewhere else. But I thought that if I left, it would mean like I'm giving my power away, right? So I decided to stay. So she meets me. I'm trying to unwind. I'm trying to kind of like shrug off the incident as like a coincidence and probably that I should have picked a different place that wasn't as close to his home, right? Again, you know, making excuses for him. <laughs> Another time I bore the blame. 
I, of course, was wrong again. Um, but about an hour into her hanging out with me, um, he texted me and it just said, enjoy your date. So I kind of blew it off. I'm talking with my friend about how the day went and, of course, how he's automatically assuming in his kind of frenetic and jealous way that I would immediately be going out on a date, you know, like with his replacement, probably another projection. I'm sure he was doing that. Um, like, I, at this point, I'm just hoping he goes away. So I just ignore the text. And then he sent me another one an hour later saying that he found my estranged husband on social media and had reached out to him. So my, now he's my ex-husband. He knew that I was dating my narc. I had told him we knew. He had asked me like a month prior to this if I was in an abusive relationship, which was strange. And I had denied it then, but I mean, it's definitely what it was. I don't know if it was because of how I was acting. I'm not even sure why he asked. Um, he was right. So I leave the restaurant um, because now I'm in like a frantic state of panic. Um, so yeah, now yeah. I know I have to... Sorry, and, and just to clarify for everyone, you know, te- you know, technically here, the relationship is over in in one yes. sense. However, now this terrifying part is uh, beginning where, you know, you yeah. have, you know, left him and now uh, whatever jealousy, anger, rage or whatever else is going on has kind of taken over. And it, it you know, yeah. the next part of your story is dealing with uh, what is about to uh, occur and the lengths that he goes to disrupt your life. Oh, yes. To destroy my life. Yeah. 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 So I leave the restaurant and now I'm like, I got to go kind of do damage control, right? Go to the soon to be ex-husband and kind of explain that, yeah, I was in an abusive relationship. This is now what's going on. Um, Thankfully, because my ex is not a psychopath, um, he said that he wasn't going to respond to the narc and he wanted to stay out of it. Thank God. Um, But, you know, not a fun conversation that the two of us had in that moment. Um, so at that point, I respond to the narc, and I'm just, like, asking in desperation for him to please stop contacting me. Just kind of, like, let's just go our separate ways, wish you nothing but the best, but, like, we just have to please leave me alone. So then he began his threat to expose me to my children and on social media regarding all of the personal information I had given him about my previous sexual relationships. So I gave him the information that would then be used to torture me. I'm the one who weaponized him. Um, The information that he said prevented him from sleeping would now be what haunted me in my every waking moment. Um, I begged, I pleaded for him to not involve my kids as they were completely unaware that my ex-husband and I at the time were even getting divorced. We hadn't told them yet because it was still during the school year and we didn't want to disrupt their school life. So then our continuous threats. Um, he just kept saying, like, your kids are going to know. Just, like, just horrific stuff. It was just awful. So it was about 2 a.m. I decide that I need to go to the police, and I need to find out what my options are. Um, so I went alone um, to the police station. Um, he called me as I was driving to the police station and just berated me, just screaming at me the entire way there, just screaming, screaming, screaming. I, I'm pretty sure he was drunk. Um, I let him rant on. I was hoping that he was drunk and that he would just kind of get it out of his system, leave me alone and pass out. That that was my hope. Um, you know, unfortunately, that's not what happened. 
when we finally hung up, I ran into the police station. I mean, I was like panicked. I was so upset. Um, the officer that took down my information was very kind and very gentle with me, thankfully. Um, and while I was trying to explain to him what had been going on, my narc called me 43 times and he was texting me continuously. Um, I was panicked. Like I, I'd just never been around this amount of complete psychopathy. Like it was just, it was insane. Um, the officer at that point advised me that I should not answer any call or text. And I didn't. Um, but at one point I was just so hysterical that the officer took my phone from me and he put it across the room and he's, he, of course, told me I had the option to file a restraining order, but I, and I'm sure this is true of a lot of people out there, I would say women, but I'm sure it's men also, um, I was terrified to do it. I just thought he was reta- going to retaliate. I was convinced he would retaliate. Um, and at that time, because he was calling me so many times and the texts were demanding to know where I was, I was suspecting that he had somebody following me. Um, he had never really asked me before where I was, which is kind of surprising given his propensity towards jealousy, but he really never did. Um, I figured out later that this was because I was always where I said I was going to be. This police station incident, I hadn't told him I was going. Um, and I rationalized it. Okay. Like maybe I'm being paranoid because I was scared and going through this traumatic event. Like, okay, this is just me being paranoid. So at the time, I just completed an internal report that was just for our town police, just documenting the harassment, but not taking steps to do anything about it. Um, It's just basically for them internally in case they, in case you get to three, then you can file an automatic restraining order. That was just a very initial part of the process. And then the officer let me know statistically that most women reporting domestic violence incidents, they go back to their abusers. Um, And then it like hit me in that moment. Like I was a victim of domestic violence. Like what? This hadn't been my life. Like this couldn't be my life. And then I was like, did I allow it to be my life? And like, I'm often described by my friends as one of the strongest people they know. And in that moment, I couldn't recognize that person in the mirror if he paid me. Um, so I stayed at the police station for about two hours. He finally stopped texting about four in the morning. And I hoped it was because he sobered up maybe saw that he was completely irrational and crazy and would just sort of stop. So at this point I go home, I got about 30 minutes of sleep. I think just from pure exhaustion, I was just distressed. Um, but then my phone started going off around five in the morning and it was him again, demanding to know where I was the night before. And so it just started up all over again and I didn't reply. Um, I had to go to work at 9 a.m. that day. It was like a, it was like a side job. Um, I was like a fitness instructor um, in, on like the weekends. So when I arrived, my coworkers from the gym uh, greeted me at the door, and they were asking me if it was my birthday. It wasn't. Um, and they showed me two dozen roses that had been dropped off minutes before my arrival by my mark. And... There was a card, and it was handwritten by him, you know, apologizing. I didn't know why he acted that way. Just kind of like the start of the initial Grand Hoover. Um, And I just felt like I was going to be sick. Like, I felt like he was following me. Um, And then later that morning, um, I had gone to my parents and just completely broke down. Um, 
just with fear. Uh, my dad was like going crazy. Um, my mom and I went back to the police station to meet with a domestic violence counselor. Uh, thank God for domestic violence counselors that work at police stations. So if anyone's listening to this and they're debating whether or not to go to one, go to one. Um, she advised that I should have my car searched for a tracking device, um, which, of course, was a very scary option for us. He continues to text and call this whole time, and I, and I wasn't responding. I was ignoring him, which I'm sure was driving him even crazier than he was. Um, then he sent another text that gave me even more of an indication that I was being followed. So my parents and I searched my car, and I found it. It was a tracking device. It was under the dashboard. It was tucked away near, uh, underneath, like near the emergency brake, and it had indicator lights but they were blackened out with like a Sharpie. Um, and so the domestic violence counselor actually advised us that if we found anything to not touch it, uh, to take it to a lo local mechanic, which we did, who confirmed that it was in fact a tracking device. Um, I was terrified, um, obviously. I feel like that's kind of the general theme of this. Um, but now it all made sense, right? His forgetting his gym lock for his gym locker and interrupting my getting my thing, right? his arrival at the restaurant, which obviously was not a coincidence, um, his reaction to my arrival at the police station, because if he's tracking me, he knows I'm at a police station. Um, and I feel like he could have been doing it throughout the entirety of our relationship. Um, we called the police uh, and detectives and CSI came. And I just remember thinking, like, how is this my life? Like, men in uniforms, gloves taking pictures, collecting evidence, dusting for prints. Like, I I'm in a TV show. Um, and officers urged again, like the detective, um, that I file a restraining order. Again, um, I was too scared, and I was sure there would be retaliation. And then I decided to file another internal harassment complaint. The officer on duty that day was not as kind and gentle, and he was almost, like, laughing at me in disbelief uh, around the fact that I was a therapist and unable to see the lunatic that I was involved with. Um, and that day I definitely felt shame. Like I definitely, to defend myself, I felt, and it was just victim shaming. Like it just, it just was. And I'm sure he didn't mean to, and I'm sure that wasn't his intention, but you know, you're re-traumatized in that moment. And, you know, also like, keep in mind, my children have no idea what's going on. So when I'm home, I have to keep that shit together. Um, also, at this point in time, um, because, you know, I'm starting the divorce process, I'm interviewing for jobs. So I'm literally, like, going to the police station and then going on a job interview, like, same day throughout all of this. I end up getting the job. Um, but it was just bizarre. It was just awful. Um, so from this point on, I'm contacted by him in various ways every day. Email, text. Um, at one point, he was ma he mailed a package to my parents um, with an apology letter for them, one for me. He put in their sweaters of his that were old that he thought I should have, just beyond. And then the emails would vacillate between like really sentimental and warm, please come back to me, to cruel and vicious. So he would send videos from our vacation that I don't remember, containing the two of us like having fun and laughing. Again, I don't remember any of those times, to messages saying that my entire town was going to know what a horrific and disgusting liar I am and that he was going to blast it all over social media, create websites, just everything. 
and the Hoovers were like predictable in that I knew I was going to be getting them, but I never knew what the content was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to be nasty or, or wonderful. Um, I just continued to ignore him. Like I was no contact. I didn't respond. Well, I wasn't true. No contact because he could contact me, but I wasn't responding. So about, this was the really, this is where everything takes. If you think it's a bad turn, it just gets so much worse. So two weeks later, I get a call from my student-to-be ex-husband. So at the time, we're making appointments with mediators. We want to have a peaceful, relatively quick divorce. And all of that changed following his phone call to me that day. He said that he received a letter at work from my narc. My heart dropped. He worked in a company where everyone's mail was looked at prior to their receiving it. So the letter was sort of like a victim statement from the narc saying how much of a liar I was and that he regrets having ever gotten involved with me. And then he proceeded to list and describe in detail all of the personal information that I had given, most of which my husband at the time was not aware of, um, but was then. Um, I just felt horrified. My ex was irreparably embarrassed and hurt. Um, he was scared that his job was going to be in jeopardy and impacted. And now all of his coworkers, like, you know, now this is the gossip around his office. Um, I, of course, shared the same fear on his behalf. Uh, and I realized at that moment that the narc would stop at nothing to destroy not only my life, which is, I guess, fine in of itself, but the life of those around me. So I left work immediately. I went right to the courthouse. I filed a restraining order. It was such an exhausting and lengthy process. So during this process, my soon-to-be ex-husband hires a lawyer immediately and began what would be a very nasty and understandably so divorce proceeding. Again, I'm in the middle of job interviews. I'm holding it together when it comes to the kids. I have to now hire a restraining order, like a lawyer for that. Um, I get a temporary restraining order, no problem. On the temporary restraining order, me, all three of my children, my ex, my now ex-husband, and my parents. So the judge thought it was like enough. <laughs> all of those people were covered. Um, so my my narc, uh, he evaded getting served for days. He wouldn't come out of his house. Uh, he wouldn't like when you get like a temporary restraining order. It's not a criminal um, thing, so they can't like go into your house and nab you. You know, like they have to wait until you come out and then they they serve you. Um, Three days later, I received an email from him, the narc. It contained the same letter that he had sent to my ex-husband's place of employment, and my father was copied on the email. So he wanted my father to see all of the personal information that was very vulnerable to me and not something one would want their father to read about. Let's just put it that way. I quickly called my dad, and I asked him to not open the email. And thankfully, he didn't, thank God. But then the subject line of the email read, quote, not officially served yet. I called the detective on my case who called the prosecutor's office, and they determined that even though he was evading the restraining order and hadn't been served, that the subject line of that email acknowledged that he knew there was an order against him, and so it counted as a violation of the restraining order. It was a Friday. He was arrested for the violation because that is a criminal charge. And he spent the weekend in jail. And it was the first time in a really long time that I was actually able to sleep knowing that, you know, everybody around me was actually safe. Um, 
And of course, he would never accept any accountability. So he decided he was going to fight the restraining order. So we had to go to trial. And he made it really difficult. Um, of course, he hired a criminal defense attorney. But in our state, like a family law attorney would actually handle that. Um, so I found that to be pretty telling. Like, oh, you just had a criminal defense attorney in your back pocket. Um, and when he got to the courthouse for the beginning of the trial, he requested that the restraining order change to what we have here called civil restraint. So basically what that is, is a gentleman's agreement is made that he wouldn't contact me, but he would have no criminal consequences in case he did. Thankfully, my lawyer laughed at him and refused that. But then I realized that this is probably his pattern, like with other women, the civil constraint, and that no one, just like the police officer had told me was the statistic, had actually gone through with an actual restraining order. So, you know, I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> I don't like to give up. And so I became more, like, resolute in that moment that I wasn't going to be the common statistic, right? So we go to court. He shows up in casual clothes jeans, a t-shirt, like he had more respect in his clothing when we went out to dinner at his like place on a weeknight. Um, he was supposed to stay away from me everywhere, you know, of course, and that counts as in the court building, but he would not do that. And so he would goad me. And so my parents, my lawyer, and the three police officers that we had subpoenaed to the trial would kind of form this circle around me while we were waiting to go into the courtroom. So having to watch my parents testify in this trial was one of the hardest and most shameful moments of my entire life. To, like, to watch the fear in their eyes on the stand and just their sense of like the unfamiliar life that like I wrapped them into. It was just awful. It was just like, I was so shame. I was so filled with shame. It, it still provokes a lot of that. And I just silently cried through the entirety of the trial. The anxiety was just like completely unbearable. I hadn't seen him in a while. And so just the fact that he was there and at times he would look over from across the room and he'd laugh at me. And he was just full of fuel, just like loving life in that moment. He just loved it, loved every second of it. And his attorney accused the detective on my case of having an affair with me, you know, because in between being terrorized, trying to protect my family keep my children unaware of what was going on, interviewing for a job, protecting the sanctity of my career and my overall sense of self, I was definitely looking to start an affair with a detective on my case. This was just a shining example of his power on other people around him. He could just gaslight everybody. And it's just a smear campaign. And I'm sure that's what he did to everybody else. My father was testifying on the stand. In the middle of his testimony, Minarch stood up during the proceeding, and he announced in this, like, booming voice, he said, I have a few questions of my own for this witness. Like, we were in an episode of Law & Order. I mean, which, by the way, was his favorite show, and he watched it incessantly, but still. So my eyes met the judges in horror. Like, my heart stopped. Thankfully, the judge scolded him, told him to take a seat, and I had to testify. And when I did, luckily, like, a, a sense of complete calm took over me. I showed no emotion. Um, I'm a good student, so my lawyer told me not to. Um, I was clear and concise in my answers, thankfully, and I was cross-examined for 90 minutes the following day. When it was time for the defense, like his side, to present their case, 
His lawyer stated that my narc had said that he was a client of mine and that I had abused and mistreated him as a therapist. And then in that moment, I'm like, oh, oh my God, he's going to destroy my career too. Like my entire life, like everything. Thankfully, the judge shot that down too and wouldn't admit any of that into evidence because it was completely unfounded. Not only was it ridiculous, but the specialty in my practice is with a completely different demographic. So he had no leg to stand on. Um, And at the end of our side, we had 14 pieces of evidence entered into the case log. Um, We had 73 pages of text messages. And he had zero pieces of evidence. And he didn't even testify, the true coward that he is. Um, Two weeks later, the judge read his verdict. Um, His ruling took approximately like an hour to read through, um, followed by like a litany of instructions that the NARC had to follow going forward. I don't remember much of it, aside from the judge calling the NARC despicable. I'll always remember that. And granting the permanent restraining order, so it's no matter where I am in the world, well, country, wherever there's extradition laws, um, and forever. Um, And it was granted on the basis of four counts. Uh, It was stalking, harassment, cyber harassment, and criminal coercion. And the judge said that in all of his years on the bench, and he was probably like in early 70s, um, he had never witnessed a more psychologically abusive case in such a short amount of time. Um, And in that moment, I never felt so validated, vindicated, and relieved in all of my life. Um, And then the narc later, like, signed a deal with the prosecutor admitting to violating the restraining order, that email, that's a criminal charge. And under that ruling... If he violates the order again, um, he'll have a minimum mandatory sentence in our state of 30 days in jail. But the judge made it very clear that he would get way more than that if he were to ever do anything. So that was about three years ago. Since that night in the police station, um, I've remained in no contact. I never responded to him. Um, He's blocked in every way from contacting me. I also now live at a different address. Um, and to my knowledge, he's made no effort to contact me. Um, luckily, like we didn't really have mutual friends. Um, and like for a few months afterwards, um, I experienced like, you know, like some PTSD symptoms, like nightmares, hypervigilance, flashbacks, paranoia. Um, and luckily most of those have like subsided. Although I will say that this week, ironically, I went to a restaurant with my friend that I haven't been to since that time, which, like I said, was three years ago. Um, and it was, it's in his neighborhood, and I hadn't thought that it would impact me. And when I drove there and got into the parking lot, I had, like, a mini panic attack. Like, I, I, I needed to talk through it for, like, 30 seconds, and I, I definitely, it, yeah, that was no bueno. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you, are there certain parts of the town or city that you're in that you don't go to, that you just kind of stay away from? That oh, you, yeah. you, you know, I was oh, going to yeah. say, like, do you get uh, panicky or anxiety if you even go near them or brush near them in those ways? And it, obviously it does happen. And, and when it comes to the, you know, your recovery now that you're, you're out of everything – 
and it's yeah. years down the road. You know, you had uh, these uh, things that he exploited and then created insecurities that never existed before. Or, or were those things easily, did they come back to you? Like, how were you able to kind of figure out what was going on um, and, you know, how different you were from the, from the beginning. So, you know, PTSD, those things, I guess, lessen over time. But as far as other things yeah. that were going on, what were the biggest things that you had to be like, oh, my God, like, this isn't me. How do I fix this? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things, honestly, was, like, learning that how, like, not to project my things onto other people. Like, to see people as who they are and not who... I would be if I were them, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like, okay, so meaning like I would never lie in that situation. So that person must not be lying to me in this situation. I would never follow somebody and stalk them and do that. I would never, I would never try to destroy someone's life. So he's not really going to do that. That, that's been a huge lesson for me is just facing, like when someone tells you who they are, believe them the first time, right? My Angelou that I definitely didn't, um, but I use it every day in my life. Um, and like in the aftermath, like I'm sure so many people do. I just started really researching it, like researching narcissist, you know, so that I'm in a more like awakened state, like not just about myself, but like about other people, like we were just talking about. And I remember sitting in the police station and the officer being like, how did you not see this? You're a therapist how did you not see this in your profession? And those questions like really haunt me, <laughs> you know? And, but like, I learned later through like hours and hours of reading and listening to podcasts like this one, thankfully, is that it can happen to anyone, right? Anyone can fall prey to the love bombing, to the mirroring, gaslighting, projection, blame shifting. I mean, pick them, future faking, exploitation, Denial, revision of history, trauma bonding, you know, it's just the overall manipulative abuse and the narcissist is a predator. And somewhere along the way, I was listening to this podcast and they were interviewing a woman who said this thing in passing and it just really like stuck with me. She said, um, like, just like in the animal kingdom, right? There's predators and there's prey and there's no shame in either one. You just have to know which one you are. And which one the person across from you is. And it's actually pretty interesting because, like, sometimes I'll bring it up in conversation <laughs> with people to see, like, what they would choose to describe themselves. And the huge lesson in my life has been not everyone is good. Right? That's still a hard concept for me to grasp. But it's, like, really real. In my field, we're, like, we're fixers, like you said earlier, right? So you, you don't get with the concept that there are just people who are bad. Because it kind of like negates what I do for a living. So my whole concept of people are like people are good. And I remember saying that to one of the police officers, the second one who like wasn't as nice. And he like laughed in my face. <laughs> but I understand from their perspective why they would laugh. Sure. From police officers, you see evil all the time. I didn't see evil in my life. I saw silent treatments and some eggshells. But I led sort of a sheltered life. Okay. Oh, big deal. I couldn't really show too much emotion. I mean, obviously that creates issues later on. But again, I didn't have this like traumatic, you know, upbringing that so many people unfortunately do. 
And nobody has like immunity against the manipulations of a narcissist or like toxic people or psychopaths, sociopaths. It's not like COVID, like there's no vaccine. You can't protect yourself. You just need to have like, and I've learned along the way, personally and professionally, like you need to know how to identify it. You need boundaries. You need to have like knowledge into your own issues and not connecting them to blame on another person and not connecting them to shame within yourself, right? That he could use that with me, with that, my past, my past, because I had shame around it. So he used that and he took a chokehold on it. And thank God I'm on the other side of it. Again, like a little panicky here and there. Um, And now I've begun to see clients who are victims of narcissistic abuse. And like we were talking about earlier, that's what led me to your page to begin with, because I wasn't planning on telling my story. I was looking to be a part of your therapeutic network. And, you know, I just look at it and I was trained early on to kind of cater to the thoughts and feelings of other people, right? That my needs could kind of like intermittently be put on pause, if that makes sense. You know, I'm really familiar with that. It doesn't mean that it's right. It just means that's what I'm familiar with. And while that quality was sort of born out of this faulty message I received when I was younger, I'm responsible for writing my own narrative. I'm responsible for defining my own story. And it's okay that I'm prey. I mean, I'm definitely prey. Like, I'm not a predator. But that's okay. Why? Because I have, like, empathy and the capacity for love and the ambition, like, towards change and positive growth. And I take accountability, like, when there needs to be repair. So prey doesn't have to mean victim. And it took me this to learn that. And I don't hate him. I don't hate my narc. Like, I never did. I have now and always have had felt pity for him. He lives as a predator. He's a parasite, right? He lives with the desperation to like overtake somebody for their residual benefits, their character trait. He's hunting all the time. He's got hypervigilant and he's always laying in wait. Like he's just lying there in wait. And there's no truth in his world. There's no depth of his thought. There's no authenticity. There's certainly no real intimacy. There's no self-awareness and there is absolutely no integrity. So at the end of the day, like he's a victim of his own sad life and he just steals lifeblood from other people. He has no capacity to provide it for himself. So like I look at it and what helped me get through it is that like I just refuse to be an emotional carcass. Like I'm just not going to. I'm not going to be broken by this like human vulture. Like that's not the end of my story. And that's why I wanted to do this and just like hope that when if somebody's listening to this somewhere, like I was at one point also somewhere, that if this just helps you make a phone call to a friend and tell them what's going on, or if it makes you go to a domestic violence counselor, or if it makes you call a lawyer, or if it just says, wait, maybe something's not right. And first of all, if you're on this podcast, you know something's not right. <laughs> if you're even like checking this out, listen to your gut, get the fuck out. You got to get out and you got to stay out. That's what HG Tudor says. He's really good. But, you know, and that's the end of my story. Well, you know, you, well, first of all, thank you for, for being here and sharing your story. You know, you've been highly quotable. One of my favorite quotes, it's just just a simple quote uh, of yours is, when you know, you have to go. And, you know, like that's kind of, for a lot of people, when it finally clicks and you know really what you're dealing with, it really sets in the motion of, okay, how do I kind of get out uh, of this? You know, and, and sometimes it takes a bit of time, but, you know, even for you, w- during your story, 
you know, part of you kind of uh, getting out was, you know, planning when is he going to be out of the house? I'm going to go here and mm-hmm. kind of take that. So, and, and for some people it takes longer, especially when you have people who are, uh, you know, in relationships, uh, don't have money and they have to start putting money away slowly. But Absolutely. The planning of it, of course. So, you know, th- just, uh, you know, thank you for, for being here. You were, you were fantastic today and, you know, you, your story was not just, you know, the, the story of, of your relationship and then the, the aftermath of what you had to go through, but everything after of how you've expressed yourself has been uh, fantastic and is going to be, uh, well, it's going to help a lot of people. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for, for being here with me today. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you for all the work that you do and for creating this because it has helped so many people, I'm sure, but definitely personally me. Well, you're welcome. And for everyone else who is listening from Vivian and I, I hope you have a good night.